Welcome to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. It's August. My apologies to those who are not wanting to think about going back to school. <laughs> but it is that time we're preparing for uh, back to school. Uh, some have already returned to school. I saw the big yellow limousines out this morning on my way in, and uh, I know that uh, many of our friends out on the, the coast, especially the, the East Coast, not heading back to school right away. Got a little time, but uh, for many in the Midwest and other places, school starts up pretty soon. How do you prepare your child for that school year? Lots of things that go into preparation. Obviously, all that school supply shopping. Hope you've got it done by now, but also some things to talk about as you're preparing for that school year. How how to prepare for uh, a number of things. We're going to take a look at one of those today, and uh, that is how to say no, when to say no as a child, when is an appropriate time, and, and how to say no. I want to say thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family. You can find out more about them on our website, kfuo.org. It is my pleasure to welcome back to Faith and Family uh, a favorite guest, Dr. Alma Golden, pediatrician from Temple, Texas, and she's had a, her career has included private pa- private practice, uh, healthcare administration, national and international public health policy. She was a presenter at the Matthew Bolfin Education Conference, which was uh, part of the American College of Pediatricians and American Association of Pro-Life Gynecologists this, this past winter. Dr. Golden, welcome back to Faith and family. Thank you, Andy. It's an honor to be invited back. Thanks so much for being my guest. And I, two of the, the, the more important vocations that I failed to mention, uh, a mother and grandmother as well, which is uh, where you've, where we find you spending a lot of your time these days. That's very true. It's wonderful to be a grandmother of a full dozen. And uh, I've, uh, it's a blessing and an honor to be able to watch not only children nationally and in practices and to pay attention to the research, but to actually see those warm and wonderful lives grow up before my very eyes. Thank you. What was it that, that got you interested in medicine and health, particularly for, uh, for children? Uh, I think the first contribution was actually from my baby brother. I um, recognized how much I loved children when I, my mother had a child uh, a baby, I thought for me when I was, <laughs> was I was ten years old, and I had this wonderful baby brother named Jim that I got to take care of so much. I think part of that just blossomed into uh, a love not only for children but also for medicine. And I, um, before I went into medicine, since that was so long ago, and there were not as many women in medicine then, I actually started off by teaching seventh grade life science. And as I've often joked, um, I discovered that probably medical school would be much easier than teaching seventh graders <laughs> for the rest of my life. So, but I think it, it really contributed to the interest that I have for um, the transition between childhood and adulthood and a lot of the challenges that our children face as they go into puberty and they start having to make more and more decisions on their own. And uh, that's, that's really contributed to my area of focus over the years in terms of looking at how do our children actually manage challenges and risks, how do they learn to make good decisions, and how do we as parents and family and professionals reinforce those good decisions. And the the number of risks and the types of risks they 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 run the gamut. Some are some are newer in this day and age, but some have been around for ages uh, that we face. What are some of the the more common situations that uh, that children and teen might be facing in terms of risks? I think that if you look at it broadly, there are two large uh, categories of risk. One of them is the one we think of most often, and that's negative risks. Those risks that uh, can lead to some serious physical problems or emotional or social problems, the kinds of risks where you worry about drinking and um, speeding in cars or or, uh, premarital sex or um, lying, some of those negative things. So I think it's really important to start off with recognizing that Risks are actually can be good as well. And I think one of the components of helping children know when to say no is by giving them 
positive risks that they're able to say yes to as well. Um, and when you really consider it, I believe risk, um, the capacity to address risk is really important to the developmental well-being of children and adolescents. Um, and if we think of pro-social or positive risks that we want to provide, it actually makes it easier for the kids to say no to the negative risks. What's an and, example um, of a, a what's an example of a positive risk? Well, probably the one of the classic examples that's been uh, studied a little bit more is the risk of volunteering in a novel situation. Many times, uh, children and young adults, or children and adolescents, if they actually learn to help other people in areas where they have never done anything themselves, let's say it's Habitat for Humanity, and they're going into a needy neighborhood where they're not familiar with things, that's a risk in many ways. And they learn to manage themselves, they learn to manage other relationships with other people in positive ways. Other positive risks are like... Um, taking them hiking in a, on a mountain trail or, or uh, teaching them how to play chess in a new club uh, where they don't know everybody and everything, but where you're able to address challenges in a positive way. I have a great story about my own dad. Um, I'm, I'm a risk taker. I think that's true for many of us who, have, who love to take advantage of new experiences. But when I was 14 years old, my dad, who had flown in World War II, um, was serving as a corporate pilot. And I loved flying with my dad. And I talked him into buying a, an airplane for me when I was 14 years old. <laughs> and, uh, and I have to tell you, um, if you get to go flying with your dad in a fabric-winged, uh, fabric-covered plane, um, you don't need to go out and, and get your kicks out of, uh, I guess, drinking or boys or anything else. There's, I think all of us have a certain titer that we need to be able to experience risk because that teaches us mastery of our own behaviors. It teaches us adult risks and rewards and responsibilities and consequences. So I want parents to look at risk not always as negative. It has some incredibly positive potential to it. If we make our children risk averse, where they just run away from challenges, then how do we get our next generation of firefighters? Where do our trauma surgeons and our jet pilots come from? Where are our combat leaders if we don't help our children confront risk and accept challenge and master it well. And I think that saying no to the negative challenges is only a, a partial component of saying yes to a really well-lived life. So life is full of risks. It's, it's evaluating those risks and, uh, and, and deciding, you know, making a, a, a well-informed decision uh, regarding that risk. I agree. Uh, and I think that it, part of it, it reminds me of one of the things, though, that my dad told me. Well, when he, the first flight he took me up after I'd finished ground school, he um, the engine quit on the airplane. And I was terrified. Hmm. And my dad sat there with his hands on his knees, and he said, where are you going to land? And I looked around. He helped me find a little grassy strip between some rice fields. And we got to where you could see the individual blades of grass on the on the ground. And then he turned the engine back on. And we <laughs> soared back up in the air. And I still had my heart in my throat at that point in time. And I turned and I looked at him and I said, Dad, what happened? And he said, I'm not going to teach you to fly if you don't know how to land. And I think you can use that analogy on many on how we as parents address um, challenges for our children. All of us want our children to fly, but sometimes we haven't taught them how to land and taught them that there are consequences if they don't fly. And one of the, one of the things that I think you start doing from very early on is giving children an opportunity to develop 
boldness and decision-making in a supported environment. And I think that's really where we need to go if we're going to teach our children how to identify those negative risks and how to embrace the positive ones in the best possible way. And, and I think also something to, to consider here is uh, learning how to make these decisions uh, sometimes in in not the best circumstances. Maybe you only have a short amount of time or you have limited resources, uh, not all the information perhaps to make the, the best decision. Uh, so how do we weigh, how does that weigh in on decision making as well for our children, for our teens? I think you have a couple of options in terms of actually creating that learning in, in some good ways. Uh, one of them is to be to make observations on what happens around you every day and seek the input from your child. Um, For instance, if you're just driving down the road uh, with your child in the back seat uh, or your adolescent, if they're graduated to the passenger seat, (laughs) which they love, um, and, and you see somebody do something silly, even like a bicycle pull out in front of a car, or uh, some, somebody just behaves uh, rudely, use that opportunity to ask questions, not necessarily always to give answers, but to say, what do you think might have happened if that car hadn't seen that bicycle pull out in front? What would you do if that was one of your friends that actually just made that decision? How are you going to prevent yourself from getting in a dangerous situation like that? Do you help them analyze it without just saying automatically, oh, my goodness, what what a silly thing for that person to do. Let them also make those observations and let your your child also recognize the decision-making process. One of the important things that that relates to is that the brain is maturing so aggressively during childhood and all the way through adolescence, even into the early 20s. And if you are always telling your your child what's right and wrong without letting them process why it's right or wrong, then they don't develop those pathways of sequential decision-making that they need. So the first thing is to use, whether it's television, radio, a personal experience while you're driving, or some story from school about someone being bullied or cheating or something like that, use that as a question, uh, uh, sort of a questioning approach instead of just a telling approach. It develops more parts of the brain. So by asking questions rather than just making uh, you know point blank statements that that was a really poor decision that was a that that was a a dumb move on their part but rather asking what do you think would have happened or why do you think they made that choice yes and I, that's not to say that those of us as parents whose automatic response is oh my goodness that was so silly or so dumb for them to do that. Yeah, we're going to say that sometimes, but then we need to help them process on why that was a problem. And it kind of goes back to one of the techniques that I've used a lot with adolescents um, in the past, um, and that is just allowing them to tell me what they know. Um, And all of us as parents need to have a technique so that we're listening carefully to what our children are exposed to. Um, Sometimes that starts with something just like a really general question, like, you know, I've heard that there's a problem with marijuana or pot here in in this town. What have you heard, Jacob? Have you heard anybody talk about that stuff? And listen to them. That does two things. It shows respect uh, for their opinion and their insights. And it also shows that you're willing to listen to them without being judgmental directly. And uh, so that kind of uh, a general question is usually helpful in terms of setting the framework for helping them understand what the risks are around them. The second thing is once you kind of understand what the pressures are around them. Uh, You can, particularly for your adolescents, you can start asking some really specific questions, you know, like, 
let's say we're worried about teen pregnancy. You can ask something along the lines of, you know, I would love to hear what your friends think about teenagers having babies. What opinions have you heard about that? And and listen carefully to what your child is listening to at home. I mean, at school. Same. You can ask the same thing about uh, things like cheating or bullying, so that you're aware of where they're coming from and what they're hearing from their peers. That's a. That also gives you an idea of whether or not they're paying attention to what their peers are saying and and what what uh, credence they give to their peers. Exactly. Really good observation because you're going to have a sense of how much influence the peers or the social network has on them. Um, And that's important for us as parents to know. We know that if children have developed a really good pattern of communication with their parents by the age of around 11, those kids seem to have really good communication when they're 17. They also tend to have fewer problems with um, what we might call delinquent or negative risk behaviors, and they're more likely to finish high school. So the years, um, the childhood years, and especially those immediate prepubertal years, are so important to developing these forms of communication. Why is it we as adults can look back to our years as as children or teens and think, why did I allow myself to do that or say that? Or why did I, why did I believe my friends when, <laughs> when they told me this? Why, why is it now we can look back? And what is it that we didn't have at that time that we have now? The short answer is brain cells and brain connections. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so fascinating that God let us get uh, almost adult-like bodies before our brains finished growing. Um, and I do, you know, we do recognize that um, decision making just really is not as easy uh, when you're uh, an adolescent. And part of it is just because of our connections have not been completed in our brains. Um, and I think that is probably why it's so critical that parents and um, mentors stay involved. Because we as parents, grandparents, mentors, professionals, teachers, we become the peripheral brain. And if we're trusted, we can help them walk through some of those decisions so that they can prevent that, um, looking back with regret on some of those events. Uh, I, I think, though, it goes back to the fact that risk is part of our developmental task. Uh, in adolescence, and so none of us are going to be perfectly satisfied with the choices we made during that time. You, you said something I think that is very key here. If we as adults, as parents, as grandparents, as as teachers, pastors, whatever, if we as adults are trusted, what uh, what is it that, that helps build that trust? What kills, kills that trust in those relationships? If, if you look back at psychological or developmental theory, one of the determinants of a sound person is the sense of belonging. And I think that um, pastors are and uh, Sunday school teachers and parents and aunts and uncles, all of us create this sense of belonging for children. And when they know they belong, and they know their position with us is secure and that they really have someone that they can rely on, I think trust builds naturally. There are several things that clearly will break trust, not only just distance and lack of communication, but also a sense of, I guess you could say, disapproval or detachment. And I think that makes it challenging during those years because the kids are pushing back against us and so sometimes when they've been contrary or um, rebellious um, are just disobedient and some general ways um, it's easier for parents and 
even youth directors to sometimes kind of pull back because we're not sure what to do. But trust is being there consistently and lovingly um, and also being truthful with our kids as they grow. What... I lost my. <laughs> I had a great question that I was thinking more about what you said. <laughs> oh, uh, it, modeling, modeling as as adults. Uh, we're you know we're talking about saying uh, you know teaching children to to make uh, choices, knowing when to say no to negative risks. Uh, how important is modeling uh, as adults? How important is it for us to model, and what is it that children need to see? If if modeling is important, what is it that children and teens need to see in that modeling? I think there are two components of the modeling that are really critical to um, to kids knowing how to handle a uh, challenge. One is they watch us take on a challenge or a new opportunity, um, you know, and the second. Um, is really to support them and guide them through those. I, I think about, um, you know, my my dad was a World War II pilot, and and we got to learn and hear a little bit about some of the things he did. He, and then he was helpful to us and let us do things. I think that's the to not only model to show and then to encourage is really important. If we get overprotective, we really um, undermine confidence in our kids sometimes. So if we try to uh, help our, or cause our kids to not have any kind of a risk experience, they really become convinced that they're not strong enough to confront risk. And I think it can really damage their confidence. So both modeling and encouraging some kind of uh, positive risk is important. I think it's also important to remember that if you if you try to be overly protective on risks, that you actually can create a mystery around it. That the kids decide that they really need to go they need to go out and get drunk because their mom told them so many times not to. You know, so you can almost create a mystery around it that makes it look more attractive. Um, and then I think the third thing is that if we really want to build resilience through risk. Um, that we actually um, recognize that if we don't allow some risk, preferably positive risk, go whitewater rafting or, or um, start a new project in a needy neighborhood, if we don't encourage that, then we actually delay adolescent, I mean, adult development. Um, we actually have a, um, some concern right now about our college kids because they're stuck. Some of them are stuck in adolescent behaviors, and that they've not moved forward to adult uh, development. And I think part of that is that we may have kept them from some of the pro-social risks that are the potential for pro-social risk, and um, as contrasted with the negative risk. So this has, uh, you think this is related to our concept of helicopter parenting and, and now this new concept of lawnmower parenting? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. And I think it's a huge risk. And as we've had, uh, I had a very interesting conversation yesterday afternoon with a, a friend uh, about uh, his recent camping trip with his, with his boys. And... Um, he knows that I lost my oldest son um, a year ago almost. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I, my greatest fear in life is to lose one of my kids. And he said, I have to tell you, I, even when we're in the mountains camping, I, I can't let this, 12, this 11 and 12-year-old out of my sight because I'm afraid, I'm so afraid of losing them. And I think that we all have fears around that that I think can actually diminish their capacity to um, accept challenge, to look at risk, to make decisions on their own, and to really approach the full scope of possibilities that God may have in front of them for their future lives. So I think we as parents can be, we can make our kids risk averse or we can make them to where they think that um, 
it's all a mystery and they have to go get away from us so that they can uncover all of these, a lot of times, negative risks. It's a real issue. Um, well, so one of the, go ahead. Well, as I say, well, so far with, uh, with our two, almost three year old, uh, my protectiveness has not created risk aversion for him. He still stands on the furniture, like stands on the couch or the chair and claims I'm super Oscar and, uh, and then tries to jump off the furniture. So he hasn't become risk aversion. Uh, he doesn't have a, an aversion to risks yet, uh, even as much as I try to protect him. So it, it hasn't created that effect, maybe down the road. We need to take a quick break. When we come back from that break, we'll continue our conversation. We're talking with, we're talking with Dr. Alma. Golden, pediatrician from Temple, Texas, and uh, with uh, just a, a great career of uh, experience in private practice, healthcare administration, national and international public health policy as well. You're listening to Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Are you aware many men struggle in the aftermath of abortion? According to research, 8% of men are seriously damaged emotionally. This means nearly 5 million men are walking wounded with millions more affected to lesser degrees. We have a website to help these hurting fathers. Menandabortion.net can refer a man to free peer-to-peer counselors anywhere in the nation. There are videos and books, healing Bible studies, research, and more. Men need to know they're not alone, and there's help for them. Meninabortion.net is the place for them to begin their journey back to wholeness. Please pray more hurting fathers of aborted babies will reach out and connect with the help they need. Once again, the address is meninabortion.net. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org. And stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable, crib or bassinet. So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, immunization. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to immunize, talk to your child's doctor. Go to health.mo.gov slash immunizations or call 800-219-3224. Brought to you by the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. God's word is our great heritage and shall be ours forever. To spread its light from age to age shall be our chief endeavor. I'm William Whedon, LCMS Director of Worship, inviting you to be sure and join us as we romp through chapter after chapter of the sacred scriptures, rejoicing in the salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ. Join us. Thy Strong Word, weekday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Underwritten by Lutheran Heritage Foundation, lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. We are talking about helping children say no. I have no problem. My child has no problem saying no, but uh, we're talking about uh, teaching them when to uh, say no, especially uh, looking at risks and making uh, good choices regarding risks, whether they're a, a negative risk or a positive risk. We're talking with Dr. Alma Golden, pediatrician from Temple, Texas. Uh, before we went to break, we were talking about, I was using the example of my son. He has uh, he has no aversion to risks. He also has no aversion to saying no right now. We've been working on uh, on that at, at home as well, uh, when is the appropriate time to say no. So this is very timely that uh, we get to talk about this today. Um, so how do we do this? How do we teach our children uh, how to make a, a, a healthy choice and good decisions when it, when faced with risks? 
Well, I think as we were kind of alluding to in the previous uh, segment, uh, I think we have to be in communication with them enough to where they understand what we what we as parents recognize as negative challenges or things that would really hurt them, hurt someone else, uh, or actually be just against the law or against God's principles. And so helping them to recognize the framework for that is really important. I think it's especially important in this day and age because many of the television uh, programs that are focused on for children actually have some pretty negative behaviors in it. Um, teasing or even bullying, uh, sort of manipulative behaviors. Sometimes there are things that they can learn from those that would actually kind of teach them to cheat or to tell uh, lies. And so um, we need to be paying close attention to what they're seeing and hearing and on media and um, even in interactions at school or in the community. So helping them know right and wrong is obviously one of the first things to do. But then we need to teach them a specific, some specific skills so they know how to stand up for themselves and what they know to be safe and right. Um, in the clinic, what I have done in the past is to uh, work with families to teach them how to use the, quote, nice way that they know. Uh, and I thought I might go over that with you this morning. Certainly. Uh, nice, obviously, is spelled N-I-C-E. And so for any of the children that are, you know, over, well, elementary school and above, certainly they're familiar with that word. And a lot of them really are afraid of being offensive. If uh, they, if someone says, "Here, let me, let me, let me copy your math paper," sometimes that's a friend that's asking that, but your child knows that's not the right thing to do. So even though they don't want to cheat, they need to be able to get out of that situation uh, in an honorable way and without being. Uh, overly rude, where they actually disrupt relationships too much. Uh, so NICE stands for four different phrases or words. One of them, the first one, the N is for say no. If a situation comes up that you know you don't want to do, or that is not right, or that it's unhealthy, or that it's unfair to someone else, be able to say no as the initial response. Not if, if your child starts off with a phrase like, I don't think so, or not now, what would that imply, Andy? <laughs> eh, they're kind of on the fence, uh, not real confident in their answer. That's right. And also it kind of almost implies that if they're pushed harder, maybe they'll change their answer, you know? So you want your child to be able to say no first. Uh, and certainly that's true if someone's trying to coerce or hurt them or offer them something like drugs or whatever. They need to be able to say no confidently. They don't have to say it angrily, but they need to be able to be clear and definitive. And it needs to be immediately followed by the I part. And the I is an I statement. And that means it, it represents something that is important to to your child. I'll give you an example. When I was a girl, uh, I didn't ever want to mess with alcohol. And if someone offered me a beer or a drink or something, I didn't know this acronym then, but I would say, no, I have an uncle who's an alcoholic and I know what alcohol does to people. And that was my I statement that I hadn't recognized until I looked at this later. And I think all of our kids need to have, it's like, no, I'm not going to share my homework with you because I know it's important for you to do your own homework. You know, so you start with an I statement. No, I don't do drugs. It's illegal. And besides that, it really messes up your body, you know. Just a no and an I statement are really important. But if the pressure continues... If whoever has um, has offered you a risk of stealing something or having sex or are um, bullying, joining in on bullying, there needs to be the third component. And that third component is a C for change things. 
Your child needs to have the skills to where they not only state no and a reason that they believe that, but they need to be able to change their environment if they can. You can either change the topic, you can change where you are and, and who you're with, or, or you can just uh, change, you know, change your activity, like go to another room. So if, let's say, for instance, that you've got a 15-year-old girl that's coming in from a volleyball game and uh, her friends that are taking her home from, from the bus stop at a fast food place. And these boys come over and start saying, hey, we've got, we've got a party going on out at so-and-so's house. Y'all come join us. And all the other girls want to go. And your daughter's sitting there, and she's pressured. Are you going to come to the party with these guys? She needs a no. She needs a reason. I don't do that because, you know, I have to be home. My mom and dad are looking for me or whatever. And then she needs to be able to change things. She needs to say, I need to run to the bathroom, or I've got to get a refill on my drink or whatever. But if the, and, and she needs to be able to change the topic, the place, are the people that she's with. If the pressure continues from that, the E is necessary. So the nice is no, a nice statement change things, and the E is an exit plan. Your child needs a specific way that they're going to get out of that pressure, high-pressure situation without having to be, can, uh, be forced to conform to it or be put into danger of, of any sort. And the exit plan is by necessity, also an exit plan that the parents or the mentors of that child need to be involved with. Most of our kids have phones now, so many of them uh, can make a phone call or send a text, and there needs to be a message that's very, very clear, but maybe not so obvious to the people that are around them. One of the nurses that I worked with, this was 20 years ago, um, she and I were talking about this particular approach to teaching refusal skills, and she said, oh, my goodness. She said, we kind of already are doing that because if my daughter's someplace and she's uncomfortable or somebody's trying to pressure her to do something, she'll call me and she'll say, <laughs> Mom, my asthma's acting up. And that was kind of like their code phrase, and her mom had started recognizing that's what my daughter says when she starts feeling pressured or uncomfortable in a, a situation. So we want to be a little bit more, um, help, help our children actually develop um, a plan so they, they know they have a safe exit from some place where they're being pressured to do things they shouldn't do. So it's important to have that conversation at home and to, to develop that plan. Actually, it's more it's it's important to develop the plan, but actually, you have to practice the plan. Uh huh. Um, if you stop and think about it, the places that have the highest survival rates uh, from a fire, let's say in a school or something, are the ones that have had their fire drills. If they've had fire drills and the kids are used to being able to manage themselves in a potentially high pressure situation, you're going to get them out and get them out safely. So practice is like, kind of like a fire drill. Or another example I use when I teach medical students, it's kind of like the basic life support uh, teaching or class that you have to go through um, to be a health provider or even like a, 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 well, lots of people go through the basic life support. But if you've been through that Red Cross program, you know they do all of the preliminaries. They tell you what they want you to do and how they want you to assess the situation. And then you practice it over and over and over with different scenarios. And uh, to be real honest, I think a lot of us, particularly by the time we've taken basic life support every two years for what seems like 100 years, <laughs> um, it's sort of like, all right, already, I got this, <laughs> because it seems boring because they keep going through all these other scenarios and you know how you're going to respond. But the reason that they do it over and over and over is because they know if you've practiced that skill, you're more likely to be able to save a life if someone really is dying in front of you or needs help. 
And in some regards, practicing the nice way to say no is kind of like preparing for basic life support so that you can know how to respond when that situation actually comes up. So it's important not only to make a plan, but you have to practice the plan. So how might you practice that? Uh, just You would practice with various scenarios at home? Yes, and I think you can do it based off of, you know, uh, stories you hear. For instance, let's say uh, your seventh grader came in, and they start telling you a story about um, somebody in their class that was bullied uh, and then uh, got into a fight after school. Then you could say, you know, I really want you to know what to do in any situation around bullying. All right. Let's practice somebody trying to get you to help them bully someone. And then you'd say, then uh, you actually want to do a role play. The smartest thing is to say, is for the parent to do something like to say to the child, hey, did you see that stupid outfit that Jason had on today? Man, he just is asking for it. You know, and then, then uh you know, talk to them about how he would respond if he heard somebody denigrating a friend and and being asked to participate in that. Hey, why don't you and I, we'll go over. We'll just, we'll just push him around a little bit. He's such a jerk anyway. How would your son respond to that? Or how would your daughter respond to that? And let, And try to get them, the kids, to say no. I don't bully people, and I believe in, in people in respecting others. To use the no and the I, and then you come on. You say, oh, come on. You know he's, he doesn't know how to talk right. He's so silly. Let the parent take on the role of trying to get them into a negative situation. Let the child practice how to respond, and then the two of them can discuss it later on. Sometimes your seventh grader is going to say, Oh, Mom, you have no idea what people say. And you say, that's right, I don't. So you be the one that starts at this time. You try to talk me into something. (laughs) You basically want to uh, set up a scenario to where you've gone over being offered drugs, being offered alcohol, um, uh, having sexual advances made, uh, cheating at school, uh, stealing something, somebody trying to get you to help steal something. You go over every one of those scenarios in different pathways. And then you kind of talk about, well, what's another way you could handle that also? And you create this format whereby they not only know that it's that they need to say no to certain situations, but they actually have a pattern to follow. They know that they're not going to be wishy-washy. They're going to say no. And then they, and they know they have to be clear and personal on it, like with the I statement. They have three mechanisms of changing either time or, or the, the, what they're talking about, who they're with, or where they're at. And then they have a clear, specific exit plan. So there are certainly some areas, as you mentioned, drug, alcohol, and uh, sex, cheating, or dishonesty. Those are certainly some areas. How uh, how do we help them build the skills to know which are good risks and which are negative risks? Well, I think actually you can help them pretty clearly on that. You can say, you can help them realize that the things that are going to be more beneficial for their life are those things that make them potentially healthier and um, I guess you could say more supportive of other people. Let me give you an example on that. Um, One of the problems that we've had, you know, one of the areas I worked in a great deal was teen pregnancy. And there was this really fascinating research that came out of Boston a number of years ago and it looked at girls who had already had one baby and um, they took they had three groups of girls that they looked at one they uh, did a program where they took these young women and they let them be volunteers in a nursing facility um, for two afternoons a week after school 
and they actually learned to it was a completely foreign environment to them. None of them have ever worked in a nursing home before, but they learned to take care of people and talk to these older people and and offer support. Another group of them, they put on a rowing team, and uh, they rowed on the on the river up there around Boston and created some skills and teams building on that. The third group, they they didn't have a, a separate intervention except the routine school thing. The girls who worked in the nursing home who learned the new skill, who addressed the new risk of entering a job-type environment and helping people they'd never confronted before, those girls had almost no repeat pregnancies. And a similar thing was found for the girls that got onto the rowing team. So it appears that if we help our kids recognize that volunteerism and sports challenges can be some among the positive um, risks that they can take, and they start recognizing that the things that are associated with with self injury and injury to others, like the like the drugs, alcohol, uh, tobacco, um, cheating, stealing, uh, teen sex, a lot of those things, they will help them recognize just how negative they are. I think also making our kids aware of, find out what the specific things that are for risk. Like, for instance, a lot of our teenagers think that marijuana is totally benign. And, our, and parents need to inform themselves so they can have that as part of their discussion on refusal, what the problems are with marijuana. The decrease, some of the, some of the research is showing that the kids that start with marijuana early on may lose as much as seven IQ points by the time they get to be into early adulthood. That makes a difference on which job you get to have for life. We need to have those kinds of things as part of our discussions with our kids so we can help them assess what's good for them and the people around them or what's potentially harmful for not only themselves but others. Sure. Yeah. What I hear is a, in this common theme, not only is this, how does this affect me, but also how does my decision here, how does my choice here affect my neighbor, those for whom I care, whether it's family or friends or, or anyone else around me that uh, to whom I'm responsible or for whom I, I might care? How does my action, how does my decision affect my neighbor? And that's a, certainly an important question to ask. I think it's really key, and it really goes back to scriptural teachings, too. And I think it's a real rich opportunity for, um, for, for faithful um, families to be able to talk about the Good Samaritan, the Golden Rule, uh, and a lot of just the very basic, beautiful truths of Scripture. Sure, the whole second table of the law, all, you know, the, the commandments of, uh, are about how we care for our neighbor, how do I serve my neighbor, and, and a, a lot of what our vocation is is about how I serve my neighbor, how can I show mercy to my neighbor. So uh, learning how to make these decisions as a child uh, and then as a, as a youth, as a teen as well. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the difference between teaching young children versus uh, youth and our adolescents, teens, uh, about these decisions and, and risks. How might, uh, what might risks look like for a, a younger child uh, versus, you know, when, you know, when we're talking about teens, uh, and the, the, the risks that are more common or more likely for them to face. What about for that younger child? Are there things that are more specific to, uh, say, that, that early childhood age or early elementary school? Well, I can think of dozens of things. <laughs> I, uh, my mind, first of all, went to your beautiful little... Uh, you have a son, right? That's yes. Jumping off of uh, t- coffee tables? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> jumping off the furniture, yes. That's right. Uh, I think that it's... Uh, I think it's really a challenge to be able to um, to address all of those risks, but clearly there there's an element of safety, but there's also an element of needing to create confidence. And uh, I remember when my uh, oldest son was two years old, I went to uh, went with a friend of mine to a um, playground, and she let her her two-year-old, I guess he was only 18 months or something, she let him climb to the top of the slide and slide down by himself. And I was just horrified. (laughs) (laughs) 
and uh, uh, the, my my friend is actually Native American. She's and she was like, he has to be able to do things on his own, and I I that really struck me that she was building that kind of confidence in her son that he had the mastery of his own body and he had the potential of making some good decisions on his own. Clearly you don't want to do that or you're placing your child at at just irresponsible risk. But I think uh, we as parents, it's back to the helicopter or lawnmower parents that you were talking about earlier, we also have to be able to have enough flexibility that we don't try to protect on some uh, on everything. Um, I think the most important risk that you want your child to really gauge almost a moral compass on has to do with the issues of respecting others, respecting and protecting themselves, honoring what God has taught us about uh, respect and care for other people in our lives and our and our world around us as well. So uh, I I would go back to the issues of um, how to say no for young children would have to really do with the the little spats that they get into and fighting, um, giving them a mechanism. So if somebody is cruel to them, they have a way of saying no without getting totally retaliatory. And, they, and you give them mechanisms whereby they can find protection and guidance and, um, and really some structure to where they can avoid being hurt if they're being bitten at Sunday school or are hit when they're over at a, at a friend's house, something like that. Then you also want to be sure that you help them recognize the benefits of uh, telling the truth. Um, I think that... Uh, if if we as family members help honor truth, uh, truth-telling by ourselves and by our children early in life, it makes trust much easier as they get older. Um, and it also opens communication about what's important as they approach adolescence. I'll bet you're really strong on... Um, wanting your little boy to, to tell you the truth, right, Andy? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just last night, uh, witnessed one of the first times that uh, he was intentionally uh, trying to deceive me when uh, he got out of bed for probably like the third time after we'd already tucked him in uh, and got up and said, Daddy, uh, I'm wet, you know, meaning his diaper is wet. His diaper is perfectly dry. Uh, <laughs> but it was the I just don't want to go to bed right now routine that's uh, starting to develop. So we're trying to, uh, to to address that now. He was doing really well for about two weeks going right to bed uh, after our, our regular bedtime routine and going to bed and staying in bed. And now all of a sudden something has changed and uh, he's wanting to get up. But that's a that's another whole program right in and of itself. <laughs> well, Dr. Golden... Hi. We're all out of time. Uh, this has been very helpful to me, and I'm certain to many of our listeners as well. Uh, things that I, I appreciate the the, uh, the acronym NICE, uh, that's helpful as well in terms of teaching our children how to make good decisions when it comes to risk, and uh, whether it's a, a negative risk or a positive risk. Thanks so much for being my guest today and sharing all these insights with us. Thank you. It's an honor, Andy. Dr. Dr. Alma Golden, pediatrician from Temple, Texas. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk with uh, with you, and uh, thanks for all that you do and our friends over at the American College of Pediatricians. Coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word on listener-supported worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news for over 90 years.